Well, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to open uh, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or to follow along there uh, in your bulletin. We begin uh, in verse 11. And while you find your place there, again, let me just uh, say what a, what a great honor it is uh, to be here and to open the word with you. I've admired the ministry of this church for uh, some time. Uh, and I'm grateful for my brother Scott, grateful for uh, Pastor Dave for extending this uh, invitation, grateful to have uh, some of my own friends who, who are here, uh, some of which were sent out of our church. Uh, at Imago Day, and they're with us today as well as uh, friends and family uh, from the Acts 29 uh, family also. And it's always good to just be with brothers and sisters from around the world, uh, being mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Uh, and um, I, ju- I just, from uh, our own church in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, the church is, is praying for today, um, and they have prayed for the last week, and it's just a, a great joy to, uh, to be with you this morning. Um, Verse 21 is on one side of our foyer in our church of this text, and on the other side of the foyer is a big global map uh, that has all of our missionaries and church planted planters kind of dotted on that map. And this was the first text that I preached from when we started our church about 11 years ago. And it's a text we go back to again and again to rekindle our passion for the gospel and our passion for evangelism. And so uh, before we jump into it, let me just offer a brief prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We realize that today the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And we pray that you would now speak to us from that which you have spoken, that you would conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray that as a result of looking into your word today, you would change us from one degree of glory to another. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, up until recently, for about 15 years straight, I had the privilege of traveling to Ukraine to teach a group of church planting students uh, a one-week course on evangelism. And one of my favorite memories uh, was when we were going around the room uh, giving sort of uh, introductions uh, to each other. And we had students from all over the former Soviet Union, and there was one brother named Emmanuel that I'll never forget. He was a massive man, about six feet seven, and he had previously spent time in prison before he was converted, and he began to tell us about his story. And Emmanuel said that the only time before meeting Christ that he opened the Bible was to tear pages out of the Bible and to fill that page with a particular substance, and he would then smoke the Bible. And now he is preaching the Bible. And I've never forgotten this picture of a guy. Like, how do you go from smoking the Bible to preaching the Bible? Well, Emmanuel met Emmanuel. Jesus Christ changes lives. And a similar question could be asked to the Apostle Paul. How do you go from persecuting Christians to preaching the gospel? And Paul, in his own words, says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that's the message of Christmas. That's the message of every day of our lives. Jesus changes lives. He takes all sorts of sinners and he transforms them into ambassadors for Christ. And God is still doing this work today. As Romans 1.16 says, that the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel still works. It still works around the world. And sure, you may not have a, a past that includes prison or something like the Apostle Paul's past. But biblically speaking, the text says that we were lost, 
But praise God, we've been found. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were condemned, and now we're justified. We were alienated, and now we are reconciled. And this text speaks to many of those wonderful themes. As what Paul's doing here is speaking about his own apostolic ministry. And as he's doing this, he gives us many implications for evangelism. That is to, to make the gospel known, to commend Christ uh, to people around the world. You notice in the text here many different speaking words that Paul mentions. Right at the uh, jump, he says in verse 11, that we persuade people. Later, he says that God makes his appeal through us. Later, he says that, that we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the only other passage in the New Testament that uses this word ambassador is also in the context of evangelism in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is asking the church to pray for him so that when he opens his mouth, that he may proclaim it boldly. Now, many Christians today are not afraid to serve in the name of Christ, but many are not as eager to speak up for Christ. And that may be for various reasons, right? Sometimes speaking up for Christ may just come with a lack of confidence. Or it could be a lack of training. For many, it seems that, uh, at least in the States, some believe that it's actually wrong to do so. There's a recent study in America done by a research group called Barna, where uh, the study uh, showed that almost half of practicing Christians who are millennials, that is, younger Christians, believe that evangelism is actually wrong. They say it's the best thing that could happen to a person and that they feel equipped to do it, but they think it's actually wrong to do so. Well, this is very out of step with New Testament Christianity. The gospel is too good and too important for us to keep it to ourselves. We are good news people in a bad news world. And the encouraging thing about speaking the gospel, about commending Christ to others, is that we don't do it on our own. God makes his appeal through us. We read in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus invites us in on this mission because he's continuing that mission through his people by the power of the Spirit. Now, as we look at this text, I'd like to look at it in three parts. First of all, why we speak. Secondly, what we speak. And thirdly, how we speak. First of all, why we speak. What is it that drove the Apostle Paul? Verses 11 to 15. This text gives us two motivations for ministry. These aren't the only motivations, but it's the two motivations that, that's here. One, the fear of the Lord. And secondly, the love of Christ. Or to put it another way, it's the awe of Christ and the love of Christ that motivates us to commend Christ. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, verse 11, we persuade others. And later in verse 14, he says, it's the love of Christ that controls us, that dominates us, that compels us. So let's look at that first motive, awe of Christ. Paul speaks here of persuading others in view of the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11, Paul says, therefore, and as you guys know, when, when that word is used, it's drawing our attention to what was previously said. And what Paul has just said in verse 10 is that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done in this life. So this speaks of our accountability before the Lord. Sometimes we're bashful about commending Christ because we assume people won't respond positively. This text is telling us we do it first and foremost unto the Lord. 
that we want to give an account for our lives, knowing that everyone at some point will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior and the judge. And people who live for Jesus' glory, we, we, we live for a different, uh, we have different priorities than people who are outside of Christ. We know that Jesus will not ask us on the last day certain things that people are consumed by, like how many social media followers did you have? Or how many likes did you have on Instagram? Did you get a good tan while you were in Dubai? No, as the old poem goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that also fills our lives with great meaning because everything we do in this life matters. Jesus says in the gospel, if you give even a cup of cold water in my name, you will not lose your reward. In Luke 14, he says, if you're going to have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, because they cannot repay you. And then he says, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He takes notice of who you have over into your home, who you invite into your life. You see, so ministry, first and foremost, is, is, is done unto the Lord. Why do we speak for Christ? Because we will stand before him. Now, this doesn't mean this fear of the Lord that we stand trembling before God as Christians. Paul is not talking here about being condemned. He knows that's already been taken care of in the gospel. But rather, this fills our lives with a sense of intentionality. Uh, it, it, makes us, uh, it causes us to want to be wise with our time and with our talents. He's basically just referring to this, this idea that we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ as Christians. We are not our own. We belong to him. And therefore, the Lord calls us to, to live our lives in such a way that it pleases him. As the text says previously, uh, that we, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So then Paul kind of shifts into verses 11, uh, second part of verse 11 into verse 13, still talking about this idea of living with an accountability before the Lord, living with a, uh, an awe of Christ. But now he begins to speak a little bit about his own integrity in ministry. And it can be somewhat complex, if, but, but I'll try to walk through it carefully so we can follow Paul's train of thought here in verse 11 when he says, But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. Now, what Paul is saying here is, is he's speaking about his evangelistic work being done with an openness before God. What we are is known to God. And in this letter of 2 Corinthians, he's, he's trying to defend himself without defending himself. That's very hard to do. Because Paul was under a good bit of attack, and he's, he's trying to commend his own ministry in contrast to the false teachers. And so there's this back and forth in the letter that you read about as Paul is trying to, to basically say, God knows me through and through. He knows my motives. He knows everything about me. And I want you, church, he says, to share this positive assessment as well. When he says, I hope it is also known to your conscience. Paul had a very interesting relationship with his church in Corinth. If he gave his relationship status on Facebook, I think it would say, it's complicated. It's a very complicated relationship. There had been division. There was corruption. There were moral problems. He had challenges planting the church. He made a painful visit. He wrote a painful letter. He was planning to come again and visit the church, and he was a bit nervous about that. Many people were disrespecting Paul. They were saying things like, he's unreliable. His appearance is very weak. 
His letters look really bold, but when he shows up, eh, he's not very impressive. He has no letters of, recommend, of recommendation. He suffers too much, some believed, to be an apostle. Surprisingly, many people thought he wasn't a good speaker in Corinth. And so he's under attack in Corinth, a church that he planted, a church that he loved. And lest he appear boastful about himself, he says in verse 12, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that, w- so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what, what was in the heart. As you read 2 Corinthians, you find that there's a group of false teachers that Paul sarcastically labels as super apostles. And they were known for big, impressive, showy performances. And that was very popular in Corinth. But Paul was very different. He didn't look super impressive on the outside, but he ministered out of a heart made alive by Christ, and he ministered with an awe of Christ. And he says, don't just look at outer appearances. I hope that you will judge me properly. And then he continues this modest defense of his integrity in verse 13, when he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, what what does Paul mean here when he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God? Well, there are several options. I'll give you three. One, Paul could have just be talking about, you know, sort of the assessment some made of Jesus, that Jesus was a madman. You read about this in like Mark 3.21. Others thought Paul was crazy in that his manner of ministry was crazy. Look at his sufferings. If he is out of his mind, he says, it is for God. Or maybe they're referring to his relentless work ethic. It's hard to be sure, but based on the overall context of the letter, I think Paul probably has in mind, though, these private experiences that he had with the Lord, which were sometimes extraordinary. For example, at the end of this letter, he speaks of being caught up into the third heaven. And these extraordinary experiences were, very, were highly valued in Corinth. And, but Paul is saying, this is not the grounds of my ministry. That is between me and God. He adds then, if I am in my right mind, it is for you. In other words, he's saying an authentic ministry involves transparent, rational, gospel persuasion in public, urging people to turn to the Lord and appealing to them to be reconciled to God. It's very basic. It's very public. It's straightforward gospel presentation. He's saying that is a legit ministry. If I'm in my right mind, it is for you. And so here's what it looks like to to minister out of a healthy fear of the Lord. Verse 10, we live with an awareness that we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We want to make our lives count in this life. And we want to then have a ministry that's filled with integrity. A ministry that is not just showy on the outside and impressive to superficial assessments, but a ministry that is filled with God's word that involves faithful proclamation to people from our hearts to their hearts. Now, the second motivation, the love of Christ. He adds then this great motivation. The love of Christ controls us. That is, I think, Christ's love for us controls us. It constrains us. It dominates us. It's the controlling force of our lives. 
This love compels us to even love our enemies. And this is what makes a great missionary. This is what makes a great evangelist. This is what makes a great Christian. This is the opposite of Jonah. Jonah was the heartless missionary, if you know the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he wants to go in the opposite direction. He wants no part of the Ninevites. And then when he finally gets there, and at the end of the book of Jonah, he preaches, and the people repent. And Jonah gets mad at God for saving his enemies. He says, I knew you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah had a Ph.D. in theology, but he failed at having a heart for God. He had the right understanding of God, but he didn't have what Paul is speaking here, the love of Christ controlling us. This is what takes us to hard places. This is what compels us to share the good news when it's uncomfortable. And it's not just the, uh, the, 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 as you look at this text, you may ask the question, how do I grow in my love for others? As I think about this text, notice what causes Paul to have this reflection is where he goes next. That is the cross. Notice the four there. For the love of Christ controls us, or because rather, because we have concluded this. You see, this is what gives us this Christ-dominated life. It is the proper understanding and reflect, deep reflection upon the cross of Jesus Christ. We have concluded this, that one have, has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. And so it's, it's, and you notice it's not just the bare fact of Christ's death. It's all in that little word, for. It's what Christ's death accomplished. His death did something. Christ died instead of us, on behalf of us in place of us. It was a substitutionary death. It was an atoning death. And it was for both Jew and Gentile. It was for the nations. And the more Paul thinks about the cross of Jesus Christ, the bigger his heart gets for mission. His heart is dominated by the gospel. He seems to have never got over the wonder of the gospel. And this is very important when we think about evangelism. If the gospel doesn't thrill us personally, we will have a real tendency not to share it with other people. Right? Because you, you talk about that which you love. You talk about that which excites you. Now, you come over to my house, and by the way, you're all invited. Not by the same day. Let's, let's, let's plan it out. But if you come over on a Saturday, that's the day I like to cook. Um, and I like to have a, a full day of, of cooking with appetizers and, and everything. And my kids always want me to make guacamole. I'm assuming you know what guacamole is. If, if you don't know, you're invited over. Um, but, but I spend some time on this, and, and they tell me it's the best in the whole state of North Carolina. I'm not sure about that, but I want to get it perfect. And I, I do the cilantro and the avocado and a little splash of citrus and, and onion. And, and once I get it just the way I want it, I can't keep it to myself. You know, I go around the house telling people, oh, you got to try this. You have to try this. It's my version of taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? That's what we're doing in evangelism. When we are tasting the gospel ourselves, when we're enjoying the goodness of Jesus Christ, when we're pondering the depth 
of the cross. We cannot help but to overflow and to, to share it with those who need to hear it. Then Paul goes into a little short reflection upon the cross, what it meant when he says uh, in verses 14 and 15, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This one has died, this representative, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And there's only salvation in this one. And this is why we must communicate the gospel. This one died for all, for all the nations. He died as a representative uh, individual of humanity. And so we preach it to everyone, but his death has a particular effect for those who believe. Notice the so that there. So that, he says, those who believe may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Those who embrace Jesus Christ as Lord have been raised to walk now in new life. This is one of the practical benefits of salvation in this verse. That those who live may no longer live for themselves. We no longer live for ourselves because of what Jesus has done for us. We live for him who for our sake died and was raised. Paul doesn't say that the death of Christ means that we're no longer condemned. That is true and gloriously true. He mentions that in the next paragraph. But he says here, here's another purpose. The work of Jesus saves us not just from condemnation, but also from self-absorption. The gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. And we say, blessed riddance. That's what happened when the love of Christ controls you. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And if you're a Christian, you have a no longer in your story. And praise be to God for that. That's why we speak. Secondly, what we speak. We speak the gospel, and we notice here that Paul goes to great pains to give us various aspects of the gospel, different pictures of the gospel. We'll put it in three categories. He speaks of regeneration, reconciliation, and justification. All of it comes through our union with Jesus Christ, this mega-doctrine of salvation. You see the, the phrase in Christ throughout this text here. So first, regeneration. What does this mean? It means that we tell people you can have new life in Christ. New life. You know, something new can really excite you, can it? If you're into sports, you know, this, when your season starts, whatever sport you like, you have a, a new sense of optimism. You think maybe this is the year. Then after about two weeks, you're like, nope, maybe next year. Or you move into a new city and you, you have a lot of prospects of, of enjoyment and prosperity. Or maybe you get a new car, some new clothes. Getting a new haircut can make you feel new. At least some of you enjoy that. But the problem is your hair grows out and you have to get another haircut. Your, your house gets old, your car breaks down, your team still doesn't win. But in the gospel, there is a newness that never fades that never dies. You notice how Paul says in verse uh, 17, behold, the new has come. The new has come. 
Three things happens when this newness comes to our life. Paul says in verse 16, we see people differently. From now on, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. That is, we don't look at them simply based on external appearances. <clears throat> we don't look at a person and say, well, I'm not going to like that person because of, look, well, look how, they, how they're dressed. Or, you know, that person's wealthy and you can't trust wealthy people. Or that person has a mustache. Be careful. Or that person has an accent. They're, they can't be very smart. No, we don't look at people like that anymore. We don't size them up like that anymore. What we see is a person who is a fellow image bearer of God. We see a person with a soul who will stand before Christ. You see, the gospel has caused us to see people differently. Secondly, it's caused us to look at Jesus differently. Paul says we used to look at Jesus according to the flesh. If you just look at Jesus from a worldly perspective, you would conclude he was a failure. He didn't have any degrees. He didn't even have a house. Right? How in, how in the world is that a, a successful person to follow? Paul used to look at Jesus according to the flesh. But then God opened his eyes. And he sees Jesus differently. And finally, we view ourselves differently. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. How many of you are glad that's true today? The old has passed away, and the new has come. Notice how this invitation goes out to the world. If anyone. That would include you here today. If anyone is in Christ. This is a personally transformative experience to place your faith in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. See, this makes all the difference, doesn't it? I've always been moved by the, the story of uh, St. Augustine, the North African church father. He wa wasn't a Christian until he was about 32 years old. Mother prayed for him for many years. And he tells this remarkable story of hearing some kids singing a song outside, and he hears the song, and it leads him to get a Bible and open the Bible. And he, he says to, to God, I'm going to believe whatever I open first is your word to me, which I don't recommend. But he, he did it. Fortunately, he didn't open to Judas hung himself or something like that. But he, he opened to, to Romans chapter 13 about putting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. And Augustine was made new. And there's a story of, of him walking down the road and one of his girlfriends, and apparently he had many of them, and she's chasing him down the road. And she's saying, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he's just running away from her. And she's saying, Augustine, it is I, it is I, it is I. And he just keeps running. And she, she continues, it is I. And he eventually turns around and says, but it is not I. It is not I. And that's what happens when Jesus changes our lives. We get a new identity. We become a new person. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And this has a cosmic dimension as well. The first half of the verse actually lacks the verb in Greek. It says, so that if anyone is in Christ, and then it just says, new creation. So we normally supply the 
he is, which is true, or there is. And that, of course, is fine. But I think Paul may be saying more than that, that we're not just new creatures now, but that we are now part of the new creation to come. That's why one translation puts it, so then if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. In other words, there is what we call in theology an already and not yet dimension to the faith. We are already new creations, but there is a not yet that's coming. As D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, we only receive a very small part of our salvation in this life. The best is yet to come for the Christian, which is why we sing around this time of year. I love the song, Joy to the World. And there's that great line, he comes to make his blessings known. Where? Far as the curse is found. And where is the curse found? Everywhere. And what will he restore? Everything. All of that through Jesus Christ. And those who have come to him have received new life and the promise of this new creation. And that's what we hold out to the world. We don't just hold out to the world, hey, why don't you turn over a new leaf? Or be more religious. It's why don't you come and be a new creation? That's regeneration. Secondly, there's reconciliation. We tell people how to have peace with God. That's what verses 18 and 20 are on about. He says, all of this is from God. All of what? Everything. That, our, that salvation is of the Lord. All of this is, is uh, from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And what was Christ doing? Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And what a phrase. Not counting our trespasses against us. The psalmist says, if you kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? None of us could stand. And the good news of what Christ has done for us is that God today no longer counts our trespasses against us. We have been reconciled to this God through the work of Jesus Christ. And this is what brings us peace. And this is why many people throughout history, though wanting to be atheists, have confessed a deep lack of peace. As John Paul Sartre, one famous atheist, says, that God does not exist, I cannot deny, but that my whole being cries out for him, I cannot forget. In other words, longing for a God you don't want to believe in. Augustine said it perfectly, didn't he, when he says, O oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. They're restless because we haven't been reconciled to God. But when Jesus comes, makes us new, brings us into fellowship with God, there is a peace that transcends all human understanding. We sing it as well with my soul. And God has now given us this ministry of reconciliation. This is our new vocation as Christians. You may do a number of things to earn a living, but as a Christian, we have now this ministry of reconciliation. I became a Christian when I was in college. I was a, a baseball player. That's a sport we play in America. Hopefully you guys will, maybe, you, do you have a baseball stadium here, Scott? No, I was afraid not, yeah. You're building everything. I think you should build a baseball stadium. Um, amen, thank you, sir. Um, 
But I had a teammate in college who, who I, I did not have any interest in the gospel. I had no interest in school, period. I just went to college to play sports. And as a sophomore in college, after a lot of conversation with one of my teammates, I was trusted in Christ and became a new creation. And my teammate, who was about five foot six, in the weight room, in batting practice, all the time, he was talking about Jesus. He had the ministry of reconciliation. And that's what you have as a Christian. Well, finally, let me move on here. He says in verse 21, we offer to the world not just regeneration, that you, have, you can have new life in Christ, and not just reconciliation, you can have peace with God through Christ. But we also talk about justification, how to be made right with God through Christ. Verse 21 is a beautiful summary of the gospel. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the great exchange. Christ taking our punishment, we by faith in him receive his righteousness. As John R. W. Stott says, the essence of sin is God, or excuse me, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. You see, the Bible says we must be righteous, but we have a problem, don't we? We're not righteous. We need someone else's righteousness. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves given to us. As we say in theology, imputed to us. You probably didn't use that word this morning, I'm guessing. No one says, I imputed butter onto my bread. But that's what it means to to take from somewhere else, to, to be applied to us. And this is what Jesus has given us. He's given us what we say, call an alien righteousness. You see, the very righteousness that God requires from us, he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. But we're not righteous outside of him. And there's a whole world today that wants to try to earn righteousness. But this righteousness cannot be earned. It can only be received. It's received by faith in Jesus Christ. And we can stand justified, declared innocent before God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. For our sake, that's grace. He, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin, that is to be counted as a sinner, who knew no sin. He was sinless, perfect, spotless, so that in him, through our union with him, We enjoy all the benefits of Jesus' work. We might become the righteousness of God. We are clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness. You see, we haven't just gone from negative to neutral. We've gone from negative to positive. We stand in the righteous garments of Jesus Christ as Christians. And this is why we go to the world to proclaim the gospel. Right? So, Paul has talked to us about why we speak, in awe of Christ, the love of Christ, what we speak, the gospel, finally, how we speak. We note three things that Paul says briefly as we just circle back through the text. We speak, first of all, persuasively. Notice that in verse 11 again, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. As you read about Paul in the book of Acts, 
You see, city to city, this word popping up again. In Thessaloniki, in Acts 17, Paul is in the synagogue, and some of the people were persuaded to believe. In Corinth, in Acts 18, he's in the, uh, in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greek. In Ephesus, in the very next chapter, you see this again in Paul's ministry. And at the end of Acts, in Acts 26, before Agrippa, Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, do you think you could persuade me to be a Christian? That's what Paul was doing, city to city to city to city, persuading people. Now, some, at least in my context, are suspicious of the idea of persuading. But it's important for us to remember that persuading people with the truth is different than trying to manipulate people with emotion or false promises. Sometimes this gospel persuasion happens publicly, but for most Christians it, it doesn't. It's more one-on-one. -on -one. And evangelism feels more like counseling than preaching. But we're all doing this work of gospel persuasion. And if we're worried about persuading, we, can, we should realize that everyone around us is trying to persuade us to believe something. In America, there's no end to people commending stuff to us. Electric cars, aromatherapy, kale smoothies, Ted Lasso, CrossFit, cold brew coffee. The list goes on and on and on and on of people commending something to you, thinking that you need it. And we have the best thing, the whole, the best thing in the world to offer to the world, namely Jesus Christ. Let's do this work of persuasion with faithfulness, with integrity, but let's do it. And this can look different. It might involve you inviting someone to come to church with you, taking them out for lunch, getting in a conversation with them. It might involve inviting them to these Christmas Eve services <clears throat> so that they can hear the gospel themselves. It could be inviting someone to read the Bible with you, having a dinner, getting into conversation, but we do it persuasively. Secondly, we, we not only proclaim the gospel persuasively, but we do it faithfully. <clears throat> Notice verse 20, I skipped over it. Therefore, if we are ambassadors for Christ, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We've been entrusted with a message, Paul says, and we are ambassadors. This is, this is our new vocation. This is our identity as Christians. And there's a wonderful sense of dignity that comes with this, isn't there? You're an ambassador of Jesus. You've been sent by Jesus to represent Jesus. Now, we all have different personalities. We all have different gifts. But we all share this common identity. You may be a bold preacher like John the Baptist. Or you may be intellectually gifted like Paul. And you can reason with the philosophers. You might just be like the Samaritan lady in John 4 who just goes out inviting people. You might just be like the, the healed blind man in John 9 who just goes around sharing his testimony. That's what Jesus told the demon-possessed man who was healed to do. He says, go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. You might just practice hospitality like Levi, who invites all his friends over to a feast to meet Jesus. Or you might find yourself in a moment like Philip and the Ethiopian. This guy's just reading the Bible and he says, hey, can you tell me who this is all about? 
In any case, we represent Jesus. So let's take our, our gifting, our personality, and let's put it to use. We speak the word persuasively, faithfully, finally. We speak the word dynamically. What I mean is not that we have great oratory or rhetoric, but that there's a dynamic at work in evangelism that's unlike speaking for some other topic. God makes his appeal through us. You see, you're not alone when you share the gospel. And it's really not about our oratory or our skill. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he's continuing to do it today through faithful witnesses just like you. And so what Paul does in Ephesians 6 is he just asks the church, pray for me so that when I open my mouth, I may proclaim it boldly as I ought to speak. And because this is true, this dynamic is at work, is that God saves people through the preaching and teaching of his word, you never know who might believe. I don't know if you ever stopped to think, how on earth did I get here? <laughs> it's because this is still what's going on. God saves people through his word as it's proclaimed through one-on-one -on -one settings. And so let's open our mouths, trusting that God is still at work through normal, ordinary saints just like us. Why we speak an awe of Christ, the love of Christ. What we speak, the gospel. We hold out new life, reconciliation, justification. How do we speak? Persuasively faithfully and dynamically to our neighbors and among the nations. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to write his word upon our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you once again for the privilege we have of opening up your word publicly and for opening up your word in community. We're grateful for the privilege we have of calling you father and calling one another brother and sister because of the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we want to be good news people in a bad news world. And so we pray that you would use us in whatever context you have us in to be faithful ambassadors of yours. And may we be especially sensitive in this Christmas season where people may be more open than, than normal to turn up to a, a Christian worship service or to read a book or to engage in dialogue about our Savior. We pray that you would make us quick and ready to to be uh, alert to these opportunities, that you would give us grace, you would give us clarity, you would give us compassion, you would give us boldness, and that you would speak through us, and that you would do what we cannot do in our own human ability. We thank you for the privilege of belonging to you, for the promise of new creation, for bringing us from death to life, to giving us peace with our God, to giving us the privilege of standing justified before our God. We thank you for our union with Jesus Christ and all the benefits that brings us. And we look forward to the day in which there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death as we enjoy the second advent when Jesus Christ, our Savior, comes again. Until then, I pray you would make us faithful until that very day. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.